Today's scripture reading is taken from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, John, for reading that passage. And I also want to say right now, um, I forgot to say this at the beginning of the service. Kids, we have our second Zoom Sunday school. It's happening at 11 o'clock. So I know that might overlap with the end of this service, but parents and kids be ready to jump on Zoom. The link is in our kids' e-news that was sent out earlier this week. Uh, Merry Advent, everyone. Officially, Advent is the season before Christmas. And so, as such, it's a season of waiting. It's a season of anticipation and longing where we remember all the anticipation and the waiting for the first coming of Jesus into the world. And we also enter into the waiting and the longing and the groaning for his coming again to renew all things, to usher in an age free of disease and difficulty and disconnection. Now, anytime we wait for something important and anytime it's taking longer than we would like, we get weary, don't we? It could be waiting in line. It could be waiting in a long car ride where we really want to get to our destination. And lately, um, if you've been ordering something off of Amazon, you realize you actually have to wait like three or four days. You know, it's the end of the world. I've been waiting for a book. I'm like, three days, four days, come on, get here. We get weary of waiting. It could be something more serious, waiting for a job, waiting for relational conflict to get better waiting for our health to improve. As we come to the end of 2020, we are all weary. We've been waiting for an end to COVID. We are weary of wearing masks. We're weary of restrictions. We're weary of all that it's meant about so many things that are so important for our lives, like education, education for our kids, our connection with one another, what church looks like, that we're still having to worship virtually over our computers, over our work, over what our Christmas plans with our families will be like. We are weary of not knowing, of all the uncertainty. We are so weary. I am. And Advent is the season in the church calendar that the church has set aside to talk about our weariness. Uh, not to downplay it, not to gloss over it with sentimentalism, uh, but to face it and to ask, how does the coming of Jesus speak to our weariness? Now, the title for our 2020 Advent series is Songs for a Weary World. If we could just throw up that uh, graphic one more time uh, that we have. This was created by 
our very own David Tall, and I love it. Uh, that's a tape. If you, you kids out there are wondering what that is, it plays music. It used to go into a machine uh, that would, would play this, and music would come out of it. So Advent Songs for a Weary World, that is our Advent series for 2020. I've been seeing what other churches are doing for Advent, and I'm seeing the word weary everywhere. A lot of uh, churches are entitling their series a weary world rejoices after the line from that great Christmas carol, O Holy Night. And, you know, that just resonates. The word weary, everyone sees it and is like, that's, that's how I'm feeling. And so the question that I want to ask and that I hope to guide us in answering this Advent season is this. Is it possible to sing with joy and with praise with all of our weariness? when we are all so weary. You know, for me, Christmas and Advent can't really be Christmas without the music of Christmas. So for me, you gotta have Nat King Cole, you gotta have Handel's Messiah, and Andrew Peterson's Behold the Lamb of God um, album. Those are three of my favorites on my playlist. But the Gospel of Luke, what we'll look at this Advent series, has an even better playlist, the original Advent playlist of songs about Christmas. The Gospel of Luke has four songs in the first two chapters. There are uh, four songs about the birth of Jesus. Today we'll look at Mary's called the Magnificat. And then we'll look at John the Baptist's dad, Zachariah. His was called the Benedictus. We'll look at Simeon's song and Anna who heard that song called the Nunc Dimittis. Uh, now I can depart in Latin. And finally, on Christmas Eve, we'll reflect on the songs of the angels. It's called the Gloria. You know, this year I thought, we need something powerful to speak into our weariness. These are hard and difficult times, and songs have a way. They have a power that's greater than just prose and just the bare facts. They have a way of getting through our muddled thinking and minds and our, uh, our weariness of heart to speak powerfully to us. Each of these songs acknowledges the hard stuff. They're not just sentimental Christmas songs. And each shows us how Christmas gives us a solid reason and basis to sing and to find joy, even when we're weary. So let's look at the first of these songs, Mary's song. But before we look at her actual song, we need to, we need to reintroduce ourselves to Mary, remember who she is and the situation that led to this song that she sung. Mary was the mother of Jesus Christ. We call her the Virgin Mary. And what do we know about her? Well, most of what we know about her comes from the Gospel of Luke, who sat down with her and interviewed her and got the story of what happened leading up to the birth of her son, Jesus. Well, what we find out is Mary was from a very small town in the middle of nowhere called Nazareth. At this time, all the action, spiritually speaking, theologically, was thought to be in Jerusalem. That was the center. That was where the temple was, and the priests were active, and the leaders were. And Nazareth, this town, was way in the middle of nowhere, off the radar. There was a saying at the time, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And if, uh, if we're honest, that was the attitude. Like, what, what is that place? Nothing good can happen there, if we're honest. We all have a place like that <laughs> in, our, in our minds. For me, uh, recently I had to visit the town of Laughlin, Nevada. I don't know if you've ever been there, but we had to go there. And uh, 
it's not my favorite place. In fact, it's it's a place that I hope I never ever have to go to again. And I'm sorry if uh, you're from there or if you know somebody from there, but it, it's like the worst place in the world to me. And we all have something like that where we say, can anything good come out of Laughlin, Nevada? That's where Mary was from, from nowhere. She was also very poor after Jesus's birth uh, when her and Joseph, her husband, went to dedicate Jesus at the temple. They could only afford the offering of the poorest of the poor. So here's Mary. She was a young, poor woman from a peasant town. She was a nobody with no social status. She was engaged to a man named Joseph. And like any young bride-to-be, think about this, she was looking ahead to her future. What was life going to be like? At the time uh, of her, uh, her coming to this realization that she uh, had conceived through the vision of the angel, she was probably not even 20 years old when the angel appeared to her. In Luke 1.26, the angel said, You will conceive and you will bear a son. You will give birth to a son by the Holy Spirit. He will be the Son of God. Wow. If anything is a game changer in your life, it would be that statement. Now, let's just try, even if we're really familiar with the story of Mary, to try and imagine what would this have been like for her. She's trying to wrap her mind around all this. If this was true, everything in her life would be upended. The future that she imagined would be completely changed all in that one moment of realizing the angel is speaking this to me what is happening everything had changed for her she would have to live with the shame and the suspicion of most people not believing her you were pregnant <laughs> conceived by the holy spirit this child come on most people would never believe that and she would have to live with that disgrace She's thinking, what, what would this mean? What would this child do? Who, what would this child be like? How do you raise the Son of God? We think it's hard for us as parents to raise our children. She's thinking, raise the Son of God? What is that going to be like? And what would she tell Joseph? Would he leave her? All this is happening in her heart. Mary's song here that we just heard read comes at the very beginning of her coming to grips with all of this. None of these things were answered for her. None of these things were clear. It says in verse 39, right before this song, that right after the visit of the angel, she hurried to visit her relative Elizabeth, probably her cousin, who was much older than her, probably in her 60s, maybe 70s or older. But she was also pregnant, miraculously, with John the Baptist. So she went to Elizabeth to process all this. So this song, this Magnificat was sung likely days after Mary had this encounter with the angel, after she found out she was pregnant, before Joseph or anyone else knew. She sings with joy. This is incredible. As Protestants, we feel like we need to be uh, careful about Mary. Um, we don't pray to her or through her, but we should not miss what this amazing young woman can teach us. She is meant to be a model of faith, the first disciple, so to speak, in all of the Bible. And this song is the most she says in all of the Bible. This is her message 
for us. And in this message, she says, we can sing. We can find joy, even when the future is completely uncertain, even in a season of waiting, even when nothing is clear and we are weary and all we have is God and his word. You know, remember who this song was, was for. Remember uh, the situation of the Jewish people of this time of which Mary was a part. She was a part of a very weary people under the oppression of the Romans, waiting for hundreds of years, losing hope that anything would be different, that anything would change. And now she is facing a very uncertain future that she didn't ask for. This song of this poor, pregnant, teenage young woman is a part of an oppressed people who are waiting and weary. That's who sung this song. That's Mary. Now let's look at her song. Mary's song shows us three things about God. That when we learn, that when we believe, we will be able to sing with joy no matter what is happening in weary times, in these times that we are all in. In order to sing, to really sing, to find joy in weary times, it takes the reversal of two misconceptions that we have about God. First, the places where he works, where the action is, so to speak. And secondly, the pattern of God's work, the pattern by which he works, the pattern God uses to grow us, to draw us to himself, and to give us joy. Mary's song shows us we need to reverse, completely reverse what we think about those two things, and then we will receive the power for joy no matter what is happening. So let's look at that. We'll look at the place where God works, the pattern by which God works, and finally the power that comes when we learn and see and believe that. So first, the place where God works. Most of us as Americans, Western people, we think God works in places of power, success, and strength. When we feel in control and strong, we say, I'm doing well and God can work through me. But Mary's song shows us this needs to be completely reversed. When God looks for a place to work, to do mighty and great things, he does not look to the places of power, success, and strength. He looks to, as verse 48 says, those of humble estate, the lowly, as the, the King James Version says, the lowly estate. He looks to the low places. God works in the low and humble places that we try to avoid, that we try to get out of as quick as possible. God works in the places where we see nothing, where we see nobody, the places of humility. That's what Mary's life and Mary's song are all about. And learning and believing this is how we come to find joy. This is so hard for us. This is so hard. This is the reversal of everything we think and have been taught. We're always seeking to be strong, to move up, to be successful, to be in control of our lives. But Mary's song tells us the place where the real action is is the low places. As I was studying her song this week, I remembered something as I was reading up on this. Mary has been, uh, over the years, disregarded. She's been dismissed by scholars who look at her song and say, this is way too sophisticated. This is way too rich and deep with theology. 
to have been sung by a poor peasant nobody girl. And I think, wow, really, <laughs> doesn't that prove the point? It struck me this week that this kind of joy, this kind of rich theological praise could only come from a wise scholar, huh? Uh, and a man, no, no less, like you, who are criticizing this young peasant girl, huh? Well, maybe God is doing something here. Maybe the world, especially those who think they know something, who think they are strong, the powerful, and the privileged, they must humble themselves to learn from a poor peasant girl. Maybe she is in a better place to know God and to teach us than we are. I've been participating in a pastor's learning cohort on racial reconciliation the past few months. One of the leaders of this cohort is a Korean-American uh, pastor and professor named Sung Chan Ra. And he shared something that really hit home and challenged me on this theme. He shared when he speaks at conferences, he's planted churches, he's written books, people come up to him and ask him questions. I'm planning a church. I want to be successful. I want this to go well. What do I need to do? Get, show me what to read. Tell me what I can do to be strong. <laughs> that kind of question. And he says he's learned to tell them something that completely blows them away, and that is, you need to pay attention to the voices you are listening to. You don't need to listen to those who we see as a successful pastor, those who are successful and have built large and impressive ministries. He says, what you need in your life is a praying mom or a praying grandmother. And he went on to tell the story of his own mom, who recently passed away at 88 years old a few months ago. He says uh, she was a single mom. She raised four kids. They lived in government, subsidized housing, and had to rely on food stamps. She worked 20 hours a day, six days a week. But all her years, she prayed faithfully as a leader in her church. She raised her kids in the faith. He says her story, though, is not told because it won't be in the headlines anywhere. But like Mary's story, it dawned on me this week, hers is the voice we need to show us where God works. It's a complete reversal of what we think. Friends, in all that we've gone through during these last few months, we've all in some way lost control. We've lost power. We've lost a sense of success. We've all been humbled. And we are weary of being brought so low. And we are saying, I can't wait to get back to the place where I'm in control again. Back to the place of strength. But Mary's song is telling us, when we think like that, what we're really saying is, I can't wait to get out of the place where God can work, where God does amazing things, where the action really is. We think the place God can work is when we feel strong in control, where we're not failing, where we know what to do. But none of these things were true for Mary. And God was at work in her more powerfully than he had ever worked in the world before. So he was coming into the world in the person of Jesus. Think about that. Do you realize, according to the Bible, at this moment, and it's called the visitation. Let me just share some pictures of this moment just to help us imagine this. this. This moment between Mary and Elizabeth where Mary broke out in this song. Let's put some of those pictures up from the slides. I have a 
It's, it's a very popular moment in scripture for artists to depict in paintings. There's one. We'll move to the next one. There you see Elizabeth, who's old, and Mary, who's much younger. And one more by Rembrandt. Uh, who uses light so effectively uh, to call us right to the center of that meeting between Elizabeth and Mary. This moment is the great turning point of human history according to the story of the Bible. It's the turning point from Old Testament to New, from prophecy to fulfillment, from John, the last of the prophets who meets Jesus, the one into whom all prophecy points, from the old age of sin and death to the new age of forgiveness and life. All was happening right here with the meeting of an old woman who couldn't be pregnant, but was, and a young woman who shouldn't be pregnant, but was. This is the place where the action was, the place where God works. It's the place of humble estate, the low places. And aren't we all, haven't we all been bar brought to that place in these times? Friends, be encouraged. And I am trying to take this into my own life. Be encouraged. This is where the action is. Which leads me to my second point, the pattern of how God works. Here's the pattern. God continually gets us to the place where he can work most powerfully in and through us. Even when we try to resist through our stubbornness and our pride. That's the pattern. God is always working to get us to the place where he works, which is the low places, the place of humility. Jesus described the, described the pattern like this. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, Mary's song, it's not just about her and her life. It's about this pattern. The way God has looked on me, she says, as a nobody from nowhere. The way he's brought me all this joy, she says, all generations will call me blessed. In verse 48, she says in verse 50, from generation to generation, they will see, they will learn to praise God with me, like me, because they will learn the pattern from me. Now, one of the most remarkable things about Mary's song here is how soaked it is with scripture. The person who's recognized is writing the definitive work on the birth narratives of Jesus. Raymond Brown wrote a 700-page book on just four chapters of the Bible. He lists quotes and allusions in Mary's song to 11 different Old Testament passages. 11 different passages of the Old Testament from all over. You know, how was Mary able to process all that was happening to her, all the unknowns, the great mystery and the challenges ahead, and to get to a true place of joy and praise. Well, we see from this song, Mary had heard and meditated and soaked in the story of God in the scriptures. We don't know much about her upbringing or her parents, but clearly she had heard and meditated on the scriptures. So that when she was hit with such life-altering news, she processed her feelings and all of her emotions in light of God's word. That the story, the narrative framed all the things that were happening to her and inside of her. And from this, it's clear from this passage that she remembered the pattern that's all throughout the story of the Bible of how God works. In Abraham, a wandering nomad with no child, 
Joseph, the estranged and lost brother. Moses, the exiled outcast who didn't want to be sent. Elijah, the lonely prophet. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Daniel, the exile who lost everything. Ruth, the widow and the alien who had nothing. Hannah, who was barren. There is a pattern here. And the pattern is that God works in the humbled, the nobodies with nothing. This pattern is described in verses 51 through 55. There are seven things Mary sings about that God does. And together they all make up the pattern. She says, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers. Those are seven things. Seven, the number of completeness. Here is the complete pattern of how God works to give us joy and to bring us to himself. He scatters the proud in the hearts. He brings down the mighty. He exalts the humble, fills the hungry, and sends away the rich. And he helps his servant. It's a little bit technical here, but I want to make a point about this that all the commentators um, notice and comment on. There... There is something going on here with the tense of the verbs, if you see this. It's all in the past tense. In the Greek, it's called the aroist tense. These things Mary's singing about, she's describing them in the past tense, as, they've, as if they've already been done. Even though nothing yet had happened, Jesus is still in the womb. She's only maybe a few weeks pregnant. He's not even born. But Mary is singing like all that Jesus came to do has already been done. What is going on there? Well, I think the best way to make sense of this is um, to recognize two things. One, this is the pattern. This is how God always works. The lowly are raised up and the lofty are brought low. That is the way God works. To challenge human pride in order that his grace can break in. And this pattern has now come to its fullest expression in the little baby in Mary's womb. This is the meaning of Christmas. Live proud in your thinking, you will be scattered and bewildered by the gospel. If you are haughty and you think you are better and stronger than others, well, you will be brought down. The gospel will throw you down off your throne. If you come full of yourself, you'll be empty. But for those who come low, you'll be lifted high. For those who come hungry, you'll be filled with good things. God coming into the world as one of us brings a judgment. This is not a soft, sentimental song. This is a challenging, warning song. It says there is judgment that humbles more than anything else in this life with the birth of this child but there is also a joy that uplifts more than anything else in this life can bring joy to the weary. You know, no other belief system in this world that I'm aware of follows this pattern. Every other belief system, every other religious system says, be strong, earn it, lift yourself up, earn your place. But Christmas and Christianity 
says just the reverse. It says that God had to come. God had to come himself to do everything for us. The only way we can be saved is if we see ourselves as even lower than Mary, to learn from her that we are nobody, we are nothing, that nothing we are or can do can save us. Spiritually, we are poor and bankrupt. We cannot earn our way in. We cannot lift ourselves up. We cannot be strong enough. And so we are humble. But we also see that God not only had to come because we couldn't do anything, but God had to come because he wanted to come. Why would he come? Why would he come? Why would God himself humble himself more than anything we could ever imagine? It's in the song. It's because of his mercy. This word is connected to the Hebrew word, God's covenant love. Because of his love for us, God is saying, even though you can do nothing, you can't reach your way towards me, you are everything to me. And I will come to do everything to bring you back to myself. When these two things hit home, that God had to come because we could do nothing, and God had to come because he loves us, when they hit home in the human heart, there can be a joy no matter what's happening, a joy that is stronger than our weariness. It's the power of God at work when we are humbled and yet lifted up in the gospel. This is the power of God's work, which is my third and final point. When God brings us to the place of humility, his power is unleashed in our lives. That's where he works. That's where joyful praise springs forth from our souls. Even when life doesn't make sense and even when we are so weary. This song is called the Magnificat because uh, that's the Latin uh, word to translate the very first word in Mary's song. Mary says, magnify, my soul magnifies the Lord. The truth is that when we magnify ourselves, our own thinking, our own goodness, what we deserve or what we can do in our own strength, when we are in a place of magnifying what we're able to do, thinking our way out of things, thinking we are better than other people, that place of human pride, then the less we need a Savior, the smaller Jesus is to us and the smaller our joy. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That's a Hebrew parallelism. It's two ways of saying the same thing. When God is great to us, when we know how greatly we need a Savior, then we come to the place of great joy. This is the teaching of Christianity on joy. The most joyful people in the world are those who don't have to be great. The most joyful people in the world are those who are done trying to magnify themselves, who are caught up in magnifying God. And for this to happen, friends, we must not fight God. We must not resist God when he is bringing us to the place where he works. Low places. Humble places. Friends, in this time, we need to remember that pattern. These are humbling times. It's revealing our weaknesses. 
It's exposing our idols, straining our capacities, wearing us out, bringing us to the end of ourselves. And that is hard, but friends, based on Mary's soul, we can have hope. It's the place where God works. It's the pattern that God uses. It's the power of God. When the heart that is humble opens up and says, God, my Savior, I need you. These are humbling times. The way to the power of God. The way to joy is through humility. The way to humility is through humbling circumstances being brought low. So when we don't feel strong, when we feel weak, when we don't have the answers, when we're not in control, when we know we need help, we cannot do it alone, then we are in the best place to rejoice in the power of God because he promises to meet us there. And he has shown us that he will keep that promise to the uttermost by coming to us of becoming one of us in order that he might do everything that we need for us on our behalf. So friends, be encouraged. Let's pray now that God would break in with this power in the places where we each feel the most humble. Let me pray. Father, this song by this young girl, it deeply challenges us because there are places we admit that we want to do it ourselves, that we don't want to need help, that we want to earn our way and be seen as great. Lord, help us now not resist, not fight, but to allow ourselves to get to the place where you work. We know the pattern. We, we resist the pattern when it's happening in our lives because it's so hard to let go of control. It's so hard for us to be humble. But God, in light of the truth that you have humbled yourself to save us, I pray that you would set us free and allow us to enter into the joy that's here in this song, now in these times. We pray that you would lift us up in all of our lowly, lowliness, in the place where we feel humbled, even humiliated, that we would grab a hold of our Savior Jesus and you would meet us with joy. It's in his name we pray. Amen.